You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio Day. For 50 days, the kind of ragtag group of disciples were waiting. They had experienced Jesus' death and resurrection. They had seen Jesus' scars. The risen Jesus had walked with them, had given them instruction of what was to come next. And that they were waiting because Jesus had promised that, hey, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to send you a helper, the Holy Spirit, who's going to be your guide and comfort, the one who convicts you of sin and draws you closer to me. Jesus ascends, and they've been waiting now for these 50 days, kind of still unsure of what exactly was going to transpire. And they're gathered, both men and women, in this upper room, and they're praying, seeking God, waiting for the Spirit. And the Spirit comes at Pentecost like a rushing windstorm on the disciples. Immediately, they begin speaking in different languages. It's this great reversal of Babel earlier in the story where the languages had divided the people. Now, God isn't just the God of Israel. He's the God of all nations. He's drawing all back to himself. People that are hearing these different languages think that they're like out of their mind. They're drunk in the middle of the, the, middle of the morning. And Peter, that earlier had betrayed Jesus three times, now has this courage to stand up because he's been given the Spirit and declare to the crowds, God had come. And we crucified him, but he's risen and he's offered you forgiveness. Come, repent and believe. And thousands were saved and were baptized that day. And then throughout the Roman Empire, these different little, small little communities, these missional communities were sent out all across the empire to embody this good news that Jesus is king, not Caesar. That we're a family. We're being formed by God together for the sake of others. All across the empire, this is taking place. And across the empire, uh, the church wasn't perfect when it first got started. It had problems just like us, it had challenges. And so different leaders in the church would send letters to different churches trying to equip and encourage them. We're going to look at some letters that Jesus wrote to some of the churches in the book of Revelation the next couple of weeks. But my question as we get started is, why should we care about a letter written to a church 2,000 years ago? And how does that have any relevance to us as the church today? They're living in a particular place with a particular group of people with a particular set of problems. Why does that matter for us? So a couple of weeks ago, I saw this um, really stunning uh, news graph. It was showing the, the highest rated or highest watched news shows. So that all the normal people on there like or normal agencies like CNN, Fox News, Tucker Carlson was up in there, uh, MSNBC, and it was this graph and all these different news. And then there was this one part of the bar graph that shot straight up that was like four times the size of everybody else. And it was actually not a newscast. It was a podcast. It was the Joe Rogan podcast. Joe Rogan has 11 million people listening to each of his episodes. If you're not familiar with Joe Rogan, he's a really interesting guy. He does these long-form interviews with all kinds of people, like three hours plus, sometimes in different states of mind. He's very interesting. Uh, but recently he had come under some fire because he had brought on some different COVID uh, people to talk about some controversial things. And there was this whole movement because he's with Spotify to, to cancel him from Spotify. And different people were removing their music. I don't know if you saw this in the news, saying they need to take care of him or I'm not going to let my music play on this device. 
But I was I, I was thinking through the story, and we're not going to get into the politics of it. Don't worry. We can talk about it later. I was seeing a story like, why do people care so much about this conversation happening between Joe Rogan and some other random person? Why do people care so much about that? I mean, there's a lot of, there's a myriad of reasons, but the reasons, the reason I think is this. They realize that this conversation that Joe Rogan is happening, having with whoever else has massive implications for those who are listening in. That as they're having this conversation between the two of them, as people listen in, they are making choices and taking action based on that conversation. It has implications for the way they live, for the way that people live that listen in. And we as a church have been given all these letters that have been written to a particular group of people 2,000 years ago. But we get to listen into this conversation that's happening between Jesus and these seven churches in Revelation. And there's massive implications for us as we listen 2,000 years later of what it looks like to follow Jesus in our time and place. So that's what we're going to be doing the next seven weeks through the, through the season of Lent. Lent really is a theme or a season of returning. Hey, return. And what you're going to see in these letters is the theme over and over again of return. Whoever has ears to hear and eyes to see, listen, come back. And so we're going to look at these different churches for the next six weeks together as a church. And so before we do that, I want to give you some context uh, I want you to take you to Revelation chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, there's a couple uh, printed Bibles in the back there if you'd like to grab one of those. Um, but Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. These letters weren't written to us, but they are for us. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through says this. This is the context for which these letters are going to be, or what Jesus is going to say to these churches, these letters that would have been uh, traveled from city to city. Jesus is talking with John the Apostle, who's going to write this down and then deliver it to, the, to these different churches. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and com- companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatria, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. And look at these next couple of verses here, 17 and 18. When I, John, saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. One of my uh, favorite, probably best parenting books I've ever read is a book called Whole Brain Child by Dan Siegel. 
He's like one of the leading children's psychologists. And his whole book is about how do we parent with both sides of the brain in mind, both the left and the right brain. Your right brain is very uh, emotional. It's intuitive. It reacts to the situations. It's maybe more driven by impulse. Your left brain is more logical. It reasons with the situation to make sense of what's happening. Left and right brain. How do we activate as a parent both sides of the brain? Now, my parenting strategy usually is go something like this. Uh, you see a behavior in one of your kids that you find not appropriate for the moment or time. And so you just begin to say over and over again, please stop. Please stop the behavior. Please stop. 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 Please stop. Stop. Enough. It's a really effective strategy. You guys should try that if you want to, to learn some good skills. Now, I live with a parenting wizard. I don't know if you guys know that. Uh, Keaton is amazing, and she does something more like this. A behavior has come up. Let me hold the child. Let me take some breaths with the child. Let me care for the child. <sighs> okay, now I'm going to logic and reason with the child. She doesn't start with, stop it. Stop, come on. She's going from right brain to left brain. The parenting strategy that, that Siegel would say, like, you connect before you correct. You connect before you correct. For the next six weeks, we're going to hear some really challenging words, like really challenging words from Jesus to these churches and to us. And if we don't start with these, these couple of verses here first, what will probably happen is it will be, trans, it will be a, uh, transformed into words of shame and condemnation. But I want you to notice what Jesus does here to John, who's terrified of he, him experiencing the Lord Jesus. It says that he put, Jesus put his right hand on John's shoulder and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. So before we jump into some really hard words of warning and repentance for us as a church the next six weeks, would you hear them with the right hand of the Father, not just on John, but on you? The right hand of Jesus on you. Affirming your dignity as an image bearer and beloved by God. So that when he speaks those hard words, he's about to speak to us. He does it from a place of connection before he goes about the work of correcting. We're going to do that right now. This maybe makes some of you uncomfortable and you don't have to participate. So this is an invitation, not an expectation. But I'd love for you to turn to somebody who's, that you're not related to in some way. Turn to somebody that you're not related to. And I'd love for you just to place your right hand on their shoulder. And I want you to pray for them that over the next six weeks, as maybe God gives us a word of repentance, that it would be God's kindness that leads us to repentance, not shame and condemnation. That we would actually change and be transformed, knowing that we come from the secure place of, the, of the Jesus' right hand on our shoulder. So we're going to do that right now. Turn to somebody. You can just begin praying for them. If it feels awkward, just jump right into prayer. That's good. It can be a short prayer, but just invite the Lord over the next six weeks for that person that his kindness would lead us to repentance. Do that now. Ready, set, go. Lord Jesus, would you move in our midst? Would your right hand be upon us as we hear from you? We return to you maybe in different ways, 
over the next six weeks. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to just give one insight before we jump into the passage today. I think is really maybe important for us to hear. I've tried to set up today as we look at these words of warning from Jesus to not be words of condemnation or shame. And I hope that you hear that. One of the things that uh, I've noticed at least about um, our culture or even maybe uh, the people I spend time with and even for myself is we live in a culture that in many ways is allergic to conviction because we quickly take conviction and transform it into a message of shame or condemnation and then dismiss it. Like I hear this over and over again in my own heart and in others. They'll be maybe rightly convicted about something, but then it'll be quickly dismissed as like, that's just, Jesus wouldn't actually want me to step into that. That's just condemnation and shame. Dismiss. And then stay where they're at. Stay where I'm at. So just, just to be aware of that as we go through the next six weeks, as different things come up to the surface of our hearts and for the surface of our congregation, not all are words of condemnation or shame, but there's healthy conviction because we have God's kindness upon us. Henry Nouwen, the great spiritual sage, he would say, we are able to face our brokenness because it comes from a place of our original blessing, of our goodness, of divine image bearers. Therefore, we can face whatever might come to the surface. So hear that word as we jump into the passage. If you have uh, the Bible in front of you, Revelation chapter 2, we're going to look at the first letter, which is to the church in Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, it's just verses 1 through 7. We're going to read the, verse, the first three verses, 1, 2, and 3, to get started here. The good news is of this letter, Jesus starts with most of these letters with a word of encouragement before he gives the word of warning or rebuke, which is nice to start any conversation with that way. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Just pause right here for a second. This is Jesus that's, been, that's walking, that's holding the seven stars and walking. Hear the echo of the garden story here. Jesus holds, so there's this intimacy he has with the churches. He holds, the seven stars represent the seven churches. He holds them. But then also it says he walks among them, the golden lampstands. These churches are represented as lampstands. Like think about that image that Jesus is walking among us. He's not just with those churches, he's with our church. Verse two, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Not grown weary. A couple things to note just about the city of Ephesus as we get started in here. Ephesus was like a leading uh, city in the Roman Empire. It had the Temple of Artemis, which was kind of the main attraction of the city. Artemis was the, the goddess of fertility. Uh, there was a lot of cultic prostitution that took place in the city as people would worship this god. It was a bustling business city where people would come from all over through Ephesus to get goods or trade goods. It was like in many ways a modern American big city with all the different cultural currents and gods that were there that this little faithful church was trying to figure out how to navigate 
And look at these encouraging words. It says, you, he, Jesus notices as he's walked among them, their hard work, their good deeds, and their perseverance. Hard work, good deeds, and perseverance. Here's what I want you to do. Some of you already have your phone out, so this is great. But I'm going to give you about a minute. Uh, you can pull out your phone. I'd love for you to text somebody in our congregation that you have seen hard work, good deeds, or perseverance. If you're like, I don't know who to text, or I don't have anybody's number, you can just talk to the person next to you, or you can text some random person, and you'll, they'll wonder why you're texting them, and that's okay. But if you were just to encourage somebody in our congregation, just take the next minute, hey, where have you seen somebody display hard work, good deeds, or perseverance, as a faithful follower of Jesus. Do that now. I'll give you about a minute. Some of you are writing a really good narrative long text. That's nice for whoever is receiving that. You could end a voice memo. You can finish up your text now. You can say part two to come later. Start with the encouragement, then give the warning afterwards, right? That's what we're doing today. Hard work, perseverance, and good deeds. When I look around this space, I can tell story after story of those things. Perseverance, man. Some of the things that people in our congregation have persevered through. Hard work that have just been faithful over a long period of time. Good deeds, hidden works of God's kindness displayed in our city. Stories that I get to hear a lot of that maybe you don't know or aren't aware of. It's just everywhere. The second part of this encouragement sounds maybe not like an encouragement. It sounds kind of intense. It says that you have tested the apostles and found them to be false. There was this kind of this idea of maybe a traveling group of people that would come and say they would speak on behalf of God and they'd come to a city and bring a word from God. And in some ways there's a testing happening. I think growing up in a church myself, that always felt like it was like, hey, as I'm preaching from God's word, like you guys should test what I'm saying. Is it actually accurate to what God's saying? I think that's maybe true and an implication of this passage. But I was thinking this week, maybe it's a little bit broader. In a sense, like you have a responsibility to hold me and your shepherds accountable to their calling. And in many ways, I've thought through this a lot the last couple of years. The role of a pastor or a shepherd has been reframed in some of the more uh, helper professions of our culture. Pastor or shepherd has been reframed maybe as a therapist or as a CEO, business leader, or as a life coach, or someone who maybe has uh, good thoughts as an intellectual in some ways. And we have this tendency to reshape even the role of a shepherd or pastor. But I think the calling from this passage is for you to hold me and your shepherds accountable to their calling. And I think maybe to put it really simply, to be a shepherd is to unveil to you the ways Jesus is at work in your life and the life of his world. Like that should be my calling as I try to walk and shepherd you. That might include counseling. That might include thinking through business decisions. That might include being some kind of life coach. But at the fundamental, it should be, hey, I'm trying to reveal who is Jesus and what is he doing in your life and the life of his world and to lead us in that and to model that well. These are the encouragements. Let's jump to the warnings. Let's continue reading verses four through six. 
4 through 6. Revelation chapter 2, 4 through 6. Starts with the encouragement, now gives the warning. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We'll talk about them in, a, in another week because they come up a lot. But this is the warning. You've forsaken the love you had at first. You're doing all the right things. You're persevering in all the right ways. You're doing all uh, of the hard work necessary, but your heart has become sideways. You've forgotten your first love. That's the warning. Something with the motivation of your heart is off. There's a regular conversation Keaton and I have, usually in our, in our kitchen, where I'm trying to talk through a situation where I may be trying to coach or lead somebody or think through how to help somebody follow Jesus. And I can begin to get frustrated. Like, man, I wish that they would step more into this or I wish that uh, this wouldn't be so overwhelming to be able to like just to, to grab this thing and, and take hold of it or I wish there'd be more consistency or whatever that thing is. And it becomes like a, uh, it begins to bubble up in, in many ways, becomes like almost an irritating conversation we're having. And a couple of months ago, she just turned to me and said, you know what I've realized about you, which is always a great way to start a conversation. <laughs> and it wasn't really nice. She's, she's, just, she's, very, she's a very gentle corrector. But I was like, oh, here it comes. And she's not only like a wizard with parenting, but like is a prophet as far as can speak things like, oh, that's really true. I didn't see that for the last five months. You know what I realized about you? is you have a really hard time with other people's neediness because you never allow yourself to be needy. It's like, oh, man. You have a really hard time with that. And what she's implying is like, it's preventing you from shepherding people well. What she did right there is she revealed my motivations of the decisions I was making. And here's the true thing of this passage. Motivations reveal your master. They reveal what is your master, what is your God, the thing that's driving you. We use these four heart idols of comfort, control, success, and approval. And often those are our masters. Those are our motivations. And the decisions we're making, our hard work, our perseverance, our good deeds are actually being motivated by those masters, not by the love of God who lavishly loves us and then extends that love through us to others. Motivations reveal our masters. And the call here to start our whole series of Lent is what does repentance look like? Where does it look like to unveil, to reveal what are those motivations underneath that you've forgotten your first love, your heart in some ways is sideways, and God is calling you back. In that moment, Keaton revealed for me, hey, you have, you have the thing that drives you is control. Like you're wanting to control outcomes and situations. You're not actually being driven by love of neighbor or maybe success. If people would just do the things that I think they should do, then I'd maybe be a more successful pastor or leader or friend. The motivations reveal what masters us, what gods we worship. What could that be for you? 
to get underneath the hood of your heart and maybe doing all the right things outwardly, but your heart is sideways. It's resentful. It's bitter. It's frustrated. It's defeated. Like what's underneath there that Jesus right now is inviting you to return to your first love? This doesn't happen overnight where the motivation of your heart gets sideways. It happens over a long period of time. It's a slow drift of a bunch of small decisions that we make where we wake up one day and realize, oh, we have, we have drifted so far. We've drifted so far. The call right now is to return, to repent. What's actually motivating me and is it the lavish love of God that's been poured out in us, in Christ Jesus, and then extended through us so that our good deeds, our hard work, and our perseverance is motivated by those things underneath, not by comfort, control, success, or approval. Here's the question for us, and then we're going to have a time of response. We're going to do something different the next six weeks. We're doing a lot of different things. We're not doing communion. Some of you are going to send me an email about that tomorrow. Don't worry. I'm ready for those. But the question for us of this passage really, is the words to Ephesus to us as a church a mirror or a warning? Is it a mirror of where we're currently at or is it a warning of what's to come? Because the call of of the warning here is, I will remove your lampstand if you don't return to your first love. Those are some hard words of Jesus. For the next three to five minutes, I'm just going to invite a time of response. Here's how we're going to do that. Kenny's going to noodle some music in the back for us to get the, to get the mood right. And then I'm just going to invite you for the next three to five minutes, maybe sit in silence for the, ne- the first two minutes, but I want you to just to begin to reflect on with the words you've heard today, as you look at this passage, maybe reread the passage, 2, 1 through 7. Verse 7 says, for those who have eyes to hear, eyes to see and ears to hear. That's the question for us right now. If you have eyes to see and ears to hear, what is Jesus saying to you? What word of return and repentance is he calling you to as we start the season of Lent? So let's just sit in silence for the first couple of minutes. You can talk with your neighbor. It's helpful to process out loud. You can just sit in silence for the whole three to five minutes. But I'm just going to create this space each of the next six weeks just to respond in some way. Maybe you need to like actually write some stuff down. as a concrete ways of repentance this week or things you want to unpack as far as your motivations. But let's just sit and respond to God's word together. And then we'll close out our service.
It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's a gift to be revealed something that you need to repent of because you're met not with a condemning father, but with embrace. Welcome home. Let's celebrate. As you think about your response to today and as we think through our response in Lent, I want to give you our three challenges as a congregation, maybe acts of repentance, you could say, uh, as we enter this Lenten season. Lent, historically, was around three practices, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, which is a fancy word for giving, tithing, or giving away money to the poor. So we have three practices for you around those three things that we're going to do together as a congregation in the next six weeks. Let's start first with fasting. Fasting. We're going to invite you as a congregation to fast together every Friday lunch. Every Friday lunch. If you want to be like uh, next level, you could do from Thursday night to Friday dinner. But we're going to invite you to fast every Friday lunch for the next, I think it's only five weeks. Maybe six weeks if I'm, I think it's five though. For every five weeks on Friday, we want you to fast from lunch. We'll do it all together as a congregation. There'll be promptings for that. We'll suffer together through that. But don't worry, there's a purpose behind this because six weeks from now, when we enter into Holy Week, together we will break our fast, these six or seven weeks together with the story of God, which we're planning on doing to start Holy Week on uh, Monday, Thursday, and then, and then Good Friday. And so we want to invite you to fast with us, and then to break that fast together with the story of God at the very end of these five or six weeks. The second thing is prayer, is prayer. We're going to invite you as a congregation to pray all together around 8 p.m. each night. A really simple prayer. It's the prayer of Compline from the Anglican tradition. If you are with us a couple uh, months ago at this point, or maybe a month ago now, uh, Bree Snow, who, who came and equipped us for a night, she led us through evening prayer. And there's this really special prayer that has been on my heart, on the heart of many in our congregation in different ways, and I think it's fitting for our moment in our world of chaos and war. It's this simple prayer. Me and Clark say it together most nights before bed, we call it our special prayer. Or for my daughter, Cosette, our special prayer. But the prayer is this, and I'll send this out, so don't worry, you don't have to write it down. It's keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night. And give your angels charge over those who sleep. Tend to the sick, Lord Christ. Give rest to the weary. Clark, do you want to finish the last couple words? Give rest to the weary. Would you bless the dying? Would you soothe the suffering? Do you remember the next part, Clark? <laughs> Would you soothe the suffering? Would you pity the afflicted? And would you shield the joyous? All for your love's sake. That's the prayer. Every night at 8 p.m. as you're going to bed yourself, maybe you're not going to bed at 8 p.m., but if you're smart, you are. Around 8 p.m., you're putting your kids down or you're getting ready to go to sleep with 
another person. You could even do it on, on a Zoom call or get together with people one time a week, whatever it is. But every night for the next 40-ish days, that same prayer together as a congregation. And the last thing is giving. As you know, there's a war happening in our world that we prayed about last week. We ask for God to intervene, to turn hearts to himself. Uh, SOMA, which is the family of churches that we're a part of across the United States and the world, we actually have some churches that are in Eastern Europe where much of the conflict is happening. And SOMA as a whole has put together a Ukraine fund to funnel resources to churches that are on these different borders receiving refugees and offering care. And the, ur the, the need is really urgent, what I'm told. So far, I saw this morning, 1.5 million Ukrainians have fled their country. And there are faithful little missional communities scattered as the church always does, caring for the most vulnerable. So we get to play a role in that. I'm gonna send out the link for you and what it looked like to give towards that account. We didn't do an, offer, an Advent offering this year. And to be frank, I don't think we did the Mio family. That's my family. We didn't do a very good job of being generous in the month of December. We just didn't. It's a confession. But I think the Lord is prompting us, hey, what if we were to give to this fund instead as an act of repentance? Last week, Nate Hughes mentioned Josiah Venture also has a fund. If you have a, connect, a specific connection with Josiah Venture, you're welcome to happily give to that. I actually, I was talking to Nate. I actually think a lot of the churches are the same churches caring for people that are that are in need. I have more information that I can't share, but I'd love to share privately with you around what are the things we're gonna be using these funds for, but they're gonna be given to churches to care for those who are fleeing war. And this is our moment as a church to play a small role as the global church does its work as it's done for 2000 years of entering into the most painful points of our culture and our history. So let's pray now for uh, Ukraine Let's pray over these three challenges of prayer, fasting, and giving. And then as a benediction today, Kenny is going to send us out with a new song of new wine. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, you do keep watch over those who work and watch and weep. You do tend to the sick. You give rest to the weary. You soothe the suffering. You pity the afflicted. Lord Jesus, you even shield us in our joy. We ask now that you'd be with those who are fleeing war and violence, that your church would play their missionary role to be in this moment in time, a hospital for the sick, a refuge for the poor, peace in the midst of chaos. God, would we play our role faithfully as a church here, whether that's financially or in prayer? God, would we play our role knowing that Jesus, you are Lord of all and you've invited us to care as an extension of your hands and feet to those who are in most need. Would we step into that as an act of repentance, of return to you? Would we fast together and would we pray together so that we might be formed and shaped in your story and so the world might get a taste, God, just a taste of what you're like and the banquet that is to come. As we sing this song and we're sent out this Lenten season to start, would you mold and shape our hearts that really truly new wine would come forth and a new work of your spirit would happen in our midst. And in Jesus' name, amen.